Uh, open your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter 1. And finally, we're finishing chapter 1. <laughs> I think it took like, I think like I did five review sermons of chapter 1 over the past this past year. But finally, we're done with chapter 1. Our text for today is verses 15 through 18. But let me give you a brief review of what we have gone, studied thus far. We looked at 8 through 14, how there are five successive commands, five imperative commands from Paul to his son of the faith, Timothy, his last epistle. And his commands are so vital to him and to each of us. This is the last sermon of the Apostle Paul. He's not talking. He's not just talking for talking's sake. He's not just filling up space. Uh, he's pouring out his heart because he's know, he knows that the end is near for him. He calls him to not be ashamed of the gospel and not be ashamed of Paul, the Lord's prisoner. False shame not to receive it, not to acknowledge it, not to be motivated by shame. But instead, join with Paul in suffering for the gospel. It's a command that everyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And so we need to run to the battle line. We can't be passive as spectators. We need to take to heart this command and join with all faithful believers in suffering for the gospel of Christ. And then fourthly, he commands him to follow the pattern of solemn words that he heard Paul speak in front of others. Use Paul, his doctrine, his philosophy of ministry, his theological core values as a template, and to lay upon tracing paper and trace that over by his life. Not create his own Picture the Christian life and ministry, but follow the pattern that Paul said by his doctrine and by his life. And then he gives his final command in this passage, which is to guard the good deposit given to you, entrusted to you, guarded in love and faith. That good deposit is uh, the gospel, all the great truths that are connected to the gospel that was given to Timothy by Paul. Timothy's job, responsibility, and to all of us to guard it. It's to protect it. It's to uphold it. It's to hold it by our theology, hold it by our life, hold it by our ministry, uh, protect it and defend it from error, and making sure we pass that on faithfully to the next generation of believers. We must not despise younger men and women. We must... Uh, Trust them more than we trust ourselves. We must uh, see God's grace poured out upon them. So we do that job of entrusting these, this deposit, this stewardship that we have received to the next generation. Latter part of verse 8, we find how we are to do this. We are not to obey these commands uh, relying on our own strength, relying on our own flesh, our own discipline, our own will. We are to do it relying on the power of God. And that genimus, you cross-reference it through the rest of Pauline epistles, and you know that power is the gospel of God that, that saves the lost, that sanctifies saints. We need to do it how? By the power of God. Now, why? Because of the gospel. There are three commands given, and the two commands at the end, sandwiching the engine of this text, and that's the motivation behind the obedience. And that's so key. Remember what Elder Bob preached during my sermon last week. Remember I had him come up spiritually and speak on my behalf, because Bob's a literalist. And Bob repeated that in our retreat. Motivation is everything. Motivation is determinative. Right? Motivation is, makes a difference between 
true godliness and hypocrisy. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Right. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason is evil. Right. There is no genuine godliness to be found if you're doing all the commands of the scriptures and your heart is motivated by love for self or your self glory or ego, pride. You go on and on and on. So we, Paul constantly goes back to the gospel to make sure that Timothy is not obeying these commands out of fear of Paul. Or disappointing Paul, or letting Paul down, or he lives his life fear of man or fear of others, or conforming to Christian culture. Timothy, you must not be like like that in the, in the world. Those are that's Pharisaical mindset. You must be motivated by the gospel of God, not by me, not by fellow Christians, not by the church, not by need. It must be the gospel. That. God saved you and gave you a holy calling, not because of your works. And that's what drives you to do all that you do. Drives you, the impulses of your heart, your motivational structure is, is fixed on the gospel. So as you obey, you're indeed glorifying and pleasing the Lord. And then now we get to verses 15 through 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you all know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You'll, you'll find um, this is a simple passage, but a difficult passage as well. And looks uh, very straightforward, but it's uh, pregnant with precious truth. Truth that will, will encourage your heart, encourage my heart. As I was pondering upon this passage, this past week, I don't know, you know, random things happen in my mind. My memory is kind of sequential, but it's also like dynamic. So, disconnected from this passage, but somewhat you'll find it's connected. I just start thinking about um, Rex, right? Where's Rex? He led praise this morning, so it's perfect. Where is he? Oh, there he is. So, I, Rex and I go back like 19 years, right? 1990? Right, 1990. So, I was a youth pastor at a small church in Downey. Presbyterian Church, leading about 20, 30 kids. And then one day, a bunch of these like mean-looking guys show up to our youth group. Just tra- graduated from high school, right? And one like nice-looking guy and one kind of mean-looking guy. And I go to the nice-looking guy first. And go, hey, how you doing? Welcome to our church. And he says, oh, you know, what's your name? My name is James. Oh, my name is Rex. Rex Huang. Oh, your friend's here. What's your friend's name? Oh, my name is James. What's your name? My name is Rex. <laughs> Wait a minute. I've never met a Rex in my whole life. <laughs> you're Rex Wong, and your best friend is Rex Morishida. We have two Rexes in our church. Welcome, guys. So, you guys didn't know this, but Rex came with Rex. These two guys came to our youth group. And Rex Wong, he was like a good countenance. He was smiling. He was friendly. Huh? And then Rex Morishita, man, he, had, he was like Clint Eastwood. You know, was like, <laughs> he was like sitting there and like, not like grunting, huh, Rex? Uh. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, I was preaching like second or third Sunday. Kelly, you were there, right? Kelly was there. Actually, I could vouch for this. Like, Rex, like, looked at me and looked, like, he was like, I thought he was angry, he was upset, and, uh, so I was like counting on Rex Fong, you know, to grow, and he was like, Rex Fong was enthusiastic and all pumped up, and, like, our praise was kind of dead, but Rex Fong would tell everybody, get up and let's stand and worship God together. And Rex Morris would be like, ugh. <laughs> 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 true story. Ask Kelly. I'm not, true story. I'm not exaggerating. And then we had, we had this prayer meeting, went to a prayer mountain. And, you know, Koreans are known to do that, right? Go to a mountain and pray. 
Now Rex came, and Rex is like all scared. He's like, what is this prayer mountain thing? I've never, I, I go to the mountain to ski. I don't go to the mountain to pray. What are we doing? Oh, don't worry, Rex. It's just going to be like service, but at, in a mountain, you know, <laughs> and, uh, that's a bit of cabin. So we go, and Rex becomes a Christian. You know, and he has CD collection was all like rap music and hip hop. He was a DJ, and and like he got rid of all of that and it was all like Christian hip hop and Christian rap music, <laughs> Christian R and B, you know. <laughs> and he started to read the Bible and grow. But the Rex Hong, his heart got more and more hardened to Christ, and you know he had a big flare up. He got angry at me and. All these things, and Rex Fong left the church, but Rex Morishita stayed with Christ, continued to grow in Christ, and here we are still serving Christ together and following Him 19 years later. Um, and that's the parallel we see here with this text. Uh, a simple three point sermon this morning. There is sorrow in this passage. To us, by jealous homogenies, what are these guys? Whatever, right? Weird names, right? <laughs> they must have gotten a lot of jokes at them when they were young. What kind of name is homogenized? What is that, right? <laughs> to us, they're just names. But to Paul, they were his friends, co-laborers, men that he depended on, he loved. There's sorrow in this passage. And there is a lot of joy in this passage. Because unlike Phygelus and Hermogenes, there is Onesiphorus, this man. In, the, in Paul's hour of greatest hour of need, he was there, steadfast, immovable, abounding, above and beyond the call of duty as a Christian brother. There's great joy there. And then there is also mystery, right? There is mystery. Verse 16 and verse 18 there is a mystery there, so I'm going to do some hermeneutical gymnastics and hope I land on my feet. You guys can give me a grade afterwards. Because I was telling my wife on the drive here this morning and she was, she was not getting it. She was like, I don't know if that works. <laughs> so I'm going to put it out there and uh, hope, hope, hope it's right. When I studied this passage eight years ago, ten years ago, I had it wrong. When I studied this past few years ago, I think I had it wrong. Earlier in this week, I had it wrong. So I'm still, it's a work in progress, but I think I got it right. But we'll see and try to solve that mystery. Let's begin with uh, sorrow. Of course, sorrow concerns these two men. Their utter faithlessness toward Paul. He's talking about all who are in Asia. In the New Testament, Asia is not the continent of Asia. I think we know this, right? But the Roman province, which consisted the western part of Asia Minor. And Ephesus was the capital. In Rome, Paul was imprisoned. His friends knew about it. He told and wrote his friends throughout Asia to come and aid him and help him and support him and come to his trial. No one came to his aid. Motivated most likely out of fear, they abandoned him. Paul was most likely charged not with a religious crime, but a political crime. Uh, a religious crime wouldn't warrant uh, an execution. But most likely the Jews connected his belief in Christ as disturbing the peace and being an atheist, not acknowledging the gods of Rome and made it a political case against him. Therefore, in this uh, highly charged political environment, to be a friend of anyone who was against the government was dangerous to that person and to that person's family. So, they were all afraid of their own safety, their own skin. They turned away. The Greek word is apostrepho, from where we get the word apostate. Uh, the aorist passive 
passive voice, but because of the errors, it has a middle force to it, meaning they themselves turned away. They decided on their own to go away from Paul. The word, the definition found is, is turn one's countenance away from someone, to just turn one's back against somebody. It's to disavow one's relationship with another. I mean, this happened to Christ and this happened to Paul. Christ said, if they persecute you, remember that they persecuted me first. If you experience suffering, know that I suffered first. Peter disavowed any relationship with Christ. I don't know the man. So all these Christians in Asia Minor, they disavowed knowledge of Paul. They repudiated Paul. They showed indifference, coldness, disloyalty. They failed to support Paul while he was in prison. They failed to support him in his trial. And it was not just a relational defection. It was defection away from the gospel. Paul is not getting payback here. Right? He's not in a relational tiff and all oh, they offend him. He's not going to name them my epistle. And Timothy, okay, you show the, give them the cold shoulder when they come to your church because right, they didn't like minister to me. No, he names them by name. He's not gossiping. He's not slandering. He's naming them because the repudiation was not just for Paul, but Paul's gospel. For theological truth. For the Word of God. For Christ Himself. Calling them out because they have departed from sound words. From the good deposit. The truth that Paul received and Paul gave to these men. These men repudiated these doctrines and left Paul. And uh, if you've been a Christian long enough, you'll you'll know that this is a part of the Christian experience. This is a part of it. We we don't want it. We don't like it. We don't enjoy it. We don't want any part of it. But this is the reality. If you experience these kind of sorrows as a Christian, and definitely as a Christian leader. Christ experienced it. Uh, how the masses left him uh, in John 6. And so much so that he asked the 12, are you leaving too? And then he experienced it with Judas and experienced it with Peter. Paul experienced it here with Phygelus and Hermogenes. And, you know, I've experienced it. You know, February, Bob and I, we look forward to it. We are looking forward to our 10th year anniversary. At the same time, we know what comes with it is a lot of slideshows and a lot of pictures. I want to share our hearts with you. We have nothing but the fondest memories of our early years. And most of them, 75% of our members who planted this church are with us today, still growing in Christ, still savoring the gospel with us. Uh, some have left because... Of, uh, of job, because of, you know, marriage, because of different circumstances, legitimate reasons. They've gone to other churches and we rejoice because they're still walking with Christ. But a few, uh, it's not that they left Cornerstone, but because they left Christ. They repudiated the gospel and they left Christ's church and today they're not walking with Christ. And so when we see these pictures, most of you are like, oh, okay, all these people. But to those of us who are there, there is joy. You know, looking at our, uh, how much we've all, you know, grown. And then there is sorrow intertwined in that joy because we recognize faces. We know that they're not walking with Christ today. That is um, an experience that if you have not experienced already, you will in time. And we see that here for Paul. But Paul does not linger at his sorrow. He does not sulk. He's not having a pity party. He immediately, he quickly turns to his joy. He turns to this 
faithful brother in Christ who was a source of encouragement of spiritual stimulation. The word refreshed, idea of revival, rejuvenation, restoration. It's an interesting word Paul uses here. It's the idea that Paul was dejected, discouraged, running low, and Onesiphorus came and revived him. He gave me life. He strengthened me. He invigorated me. Because... Onesiphorus wasn't afraid. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. And he wasn't ashamed of uh, this gospel preacher, the Lord's prisoner. He was faithful to the end. Look at what he did. He often refreshed me. It wasn't a one-time visit. He repeatedly came. He searched for me earnestly and found me in prison. And when he found me in prison, he was not ashamed of my chains. Not only that, he served the church. Timothy, you all know. You know better than me, actually, how he served the church at Ephesus. There is no doubt that when Onesiphorus sought out Paul and came to see him again and again, he was taking his life in his own hands. It was dangerous to keep asking where a certain criminal was to be found. It was dangerous all the more to visit him. And it was still more dangerous to keep visiting this political prisoner. But that is what Onesiphorus did. How did he do this? He obviously came, prayed for Paul, spiritually encouraged Paul, brought him, uh, brought him gifts, brought him food, brought him clothing, Brought him uh, reading material, either scriptures or Christian material for him to read, letters from other Christians. In that way, Paul remembers Onesiphorus and honors him and calls Timothy to remember him and his household. So just a little uh, pause here. And in a way of just wisdom of how we can encourage our leaders. I'm sure for many of us, we look in this for us and say, Wow, what would I have done? Right, would I have done that? And if I, you know, what if like I was there and Paul wrote me and, Yeah, this guy found me. Don't send him again. <laughs> right? Or like, oh, he's back. Right? How did you find me? I asked to be transferred to another jail. How come this guy won't let me let, let me alone? Like, would we be in, of an encouragement to Paul, or would we be a discouragement? Right now, maybe to you, are you an encouragement to your leaders? If you if you're not, it's not it's not good for you. It's not good for anyone. So we want to ask, how can I be an encouragement to spiritual leaders? Um, five ways. Five just ways just to think and, and have insight and understand. The first way is theological commitment to truth, the Word of God. Right? Like and Hermogenes cannot be an encouragement to Paul because he departed the gospel. Apart from the gospel, you can't encourage gospel leaders. Right? No matter what they brought to Paul, it would be a a source of pain and discouragement. So our love for Christ is first and foremost. Our commitment to the gospel, to the word of God, is the source of the leader's encouragement. Secondly, how we hold and practice this theology is a source of encouragement. Paul told Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words in faith and love. The manner is as important as what you do. So it's not just holding to doctrine and truth, but how we're doing it. We're doing it in, in faith, motivated by faith in Christ and love for God and love for one another. That is an encouragement to Christian leaders. Third way is to guard this good deposit. 
having discernment, like thinking biblically, refuting error, speaking biblically, um, protecting truth from compromise, encourages leaders. That discernment encourages leaders. Fourthly, um, personally, practically serving the leaders. It's got to be practical. Nisphorus came and just didn't say, oh, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, I'll pray for you. Because James says, what good is that? Right? Just like Epaphroditus or Nisphorus came and gave tangible gifts to demonstrate his heart, Timothy's heart, and all the faithful Christians' heart for the Apostle Paul. Right? So practically, at personal cost, sacrifice, caring for leaders, source of encouragement. And then fifthly, uh, last part of verse 18, love for the church, loving and serving the church. You know well, maybe the more literal rendering is, Timothy, you know better all the service you render to Ephesus. I think when people serve leaders and not serve the church, not only is it not an encouragement, but you have to question if there's an agenda there. Right? If people serve leaders and not the church, right? you got to wonder what's behind that. For Paul, you know, on this first coming, and he doesn't care about the Christians of Ephesus. He's not loving the church, not serving, but he's all over Paul, all serving Paul. He all wants to encourage Paul. There's a disconnect. Um, we we can't know his motivations if someone does that, but you know, alarm bells go off when that is the case. The opposite is. That's a source of great encouragement to spiritual leaders. Uh, you know, people often come and, and ask me, Pastor James, how can I encourage you? And I say, when, when you love the church, when, you're, when I see love for Christ through Christ's body, that encourages me. Because that means you're loving Christ. Because the Bible says you can't love Christ apart from loving Christians. Right? As First John, if you say you love God and you can't see but you hate your brother whom you do see, you are lost in darkness, you're deceived, you're a liar. How is that not possible? God is love. If you love God, you love the brethren, you love the church, you love Christians. And loving the church is not loving a building, it's not organization, it's not programs, you're loving the people. And so, so it's a great encouragement, a refreshment, reinvigoration for leaders is when we see Christians who love the church, growing in their love for for the church. So, these are five ways prompted by the gospel for you to consider renewing your minds, myself included, loving the church. So first is sorrow, second is joy, third is a mystery. There is mystery here. As Paul recalls how Nisiphorus ministered to him, verse 16 and 18, we find an aorist, active, optative verb. So I didn't know what this was until I looked it up this week. Right? It's optative mood. What is that? Greek is a very specific language. And this mood, or this verb, mood, like indicates um, a hope or a wish, like a prayer, but more like just hoping, hoping in prayer. That's the idea of may the Lord grant. And so as Paul thinks about this for us, he bursts out in a, in a prayer, twofold prayer. The first prayer is for Onesiphorus' household presently. He prays for Onesiphorus' family right now. And then in verse 18, he prays for Onesiphorus' 
himself in the future on the day of judgment. Right? This is a sudden bursting out of a twofold prayer. Present mercy for Onesiphorus' family and future mercy for Onesiphorus on the day of judgment. What is, what is going on here? Many commentators believe, and I would agree, that Onesiphorus is not currently with his family. If he was, then he would pray for Onesiphorus and his household. But he separates praying for Onesiphorus and his household. Furthermore, many commentators believe that Onesiphorus has died. He's passed away. That is the reason behind this twofold prayer. Now, we don't, we don't know how he died, whether he died by serving Paul. Remember Epaphroditus, Philippians 2? Right? Philippians sent Epaphroditus to minister, and he got sick, and Paul was like, Lord, don't let him die. Why, why are you serving me? Because I would feel so guilty, feel so burdened. Because he's here on my behalf, and if he gets sick and dies, I couldn't bear it. Please, Lord, spare his life. We don't know if that's what happened on this for us, but... Many commentators believe that, we don't know why, how, but he has indeed passed away. Right. So, there are maybe two options to, to understand why, or how, what, what Paul is praying for. The first option is, uh, and the Catholic commentators love this, Paul is praying for the dead. Right. This is where we find... Uh, biblical um, basis for us praying for our ancestors who died. And Onesiphorus was not a Christian. That is why Paul is praying that he would receive mercy on the judgment day. He did all these things. Served me in all these ways. Yet he was not a Christian. So Lord, because of his good deeds, he was a good man. So I pray you will show him mercy on that judgment day because his righteous deeds toward me warrant your mercy. Um, For many reasons, uh, we would reject that. One key uh, principle of hermeneutics is the analogy of faith. We have one author and there is uh, consistency and unity in the Bible. And so every obscure text, we interpret in light of clear text. We don't do the reverse. We don't interpret the clear text in light of an obscure text. Because this is, though it's an epistolary uh, text, there's narrative aspect where it's written in a historical context. And we're only hearing one side of the story. So though we know what Paul said, we don't have a commentator. Like, you know, in a movie, a, narr- a narrator who's explaining what happened, what's going on, and giving us the background story to explain to us what's happening. We're only hearing one side of the phone call, so it's hard for us to understand these texts that are, that are connected to a, a circumstance or a co- historical narrative context. You understand? So we don't understand these things, so it's obscure. So we interpret the obscure with the clear, not vice versa. And the clear text of Scripture tells us that we don't pray for the dead. Right? The Mormons and their website, Ancestors.com. It's a Mormon-run website. So we could all find our ancestors and pray for them by name because God will save them if we pray for them. They're wrong. And the Catholic ritual of burning candles for our ancestors and praying for them that they might be let out from purgatory you know, 800,000 years earlier because of that one candle, that's wrong. Right? Because the text clear, clear, clearly says that we live once and we die, Hebrews 9.27, and then in the end comes judgment. Right? There is no second chance. Right? This is it. And there is no works-based uh, review in heaven. Right? You, know, you're all, you die, you go to, you, there's judgment in Christ. But if you did good works, then he'll you know, like, you apply to colleges and your GPA is right there. Right? So after you, you're done, they review your GPA again. Maybe they'll let you in if you had a good you know, senior year. That doesn't happen spiritually. Scripture is clear on that. So we have to discount this idea of praying for the dead. Uh, second option is mercy here is not 
idea of salvation, salvific, but more idea of kindness. But when we find the word mercy in the New Testament, you know, majority of time is referring to salvation. But there are instances where mercy is spoken of in terms of kindness, not salvation. And the passage, turn with me to Philippians 2, uh, 25 through 27. Philippians 2, 25 through 27. It's obvious, right? Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 1 how he was a blasphemer or persecutor of the church, but I was shown mercy. And that word mercy is definitely salvation. God gave me what I didn't deserve. He gave me salvation. Right? So grace and mercy, like there's two words that, especially grace, almost always talk about salvation in spiritual terms. But Paul, it's an idiomatic phrase as well, where it's also used in terms of kindness on a human level. It's that passage again about Epaphroditus. Verse 25, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, minister to my need. He's been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, verse 27, he was, he was ill, near death. But look, God had mercy on him. God had mercy on him. Is that mercy salvation? Yeah, he was sick, but God saved him. He died, but he's with God, so it's okay. Is that what Paul is saying? No. God have mercy on him, but not only on him, God have mercy on me. So not only God saved him, but he saved me too. No, God, I was kind. God spared his life, physical life. And God spared me the emotional burden of having someone die serving me. But God was kind to us. And that is what Paul is praying for Onesiphorus' family. Now, right, he's writing Timothy, and I think this is what he's saying. Onesiphorus served the Lord. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of me. He risked his life in service to me. And you know, Timothy, how he served the church. And now he's passed away, and his family is vulnerable. So I pray that what God would grant kindness to his family, suffering loss, the husband, father, right? all his relatives, I'm praying that God will be kind to them, merciful to them, grant them grace and peace during this hour of need. So we see a huge insight here in terms of Christian ministry that when a man serves the Lord and he's married, it's not just him serving the Lord. His wife is taking a risk with him. When a man is married and has a family, he suffers for the Lord. But he's not the only one suffering. His wife and children suffer also because of his suffering for the Lord. And Paul understood this. Paul understood. And this first ministered, risked his life, and he is gone. And his thoughts are for Onesiphorus' wife and his children. And so later on, he ends the letter by saying, telling Timothy, greet the household of Onesiphorus. Please give them my greeting as you read this epistle to them. So, inside for us in our church, that we need to pray for uh, families, members of those who are ministering in our midst, right? wives and children of pastors, elders, flock shepherds, ministry leaders, that for every hour they spend serving the church, it's every hour that they're away from family, for every burden and weight that they're carrying for the church, the burden and weight that they're carrying on top of the burden and weight of their family, and so it's just not just one man suffering and sacrificing, but it's the whole family unit. Paul, understanding this, prays for the family. Now, I think verse 16, I think we can agree on. Verse 18 is a difficult one. Right? May the Lord grant him 
off the tip right where we began. Mood to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Fear of mercy, I, again, it's kindness. It's not salvation. Paul's not praying for his salvation. He's praying that And this first will receive uh, kindness, uh, praise, um, you know, just uh, delight from God on that judgment day. Because, um, and this is where you know I would I'll be very, I'm very soft in this. I'm just presenting it because this is not a jugular text of scripture. This is not like gospel. And this is narrative, so I have to just do my best to put these jigsaw puzzles together and, and present what I believe the text is saying, but I'm very soft in this. But the only way I can understand Paul praying that he will receive mercy from God and that day, kindness from God, is Paul can evaluate Onesiphorus's, um good works, but he doesn't know Onesiphorus' motivation. He doesn't know what's dro- what drove him to do all these things. So on that day, and um, turn with me to First Corinthians four, one through six. On that great day of judgment, there will also be a believer's judgment. Each Christian will stand before Christ, and will be judged by God. Will be evaluated by God. Judgment of fire. But it's not a judgment in terms of our salvation. What, therefore, anyone is in Christ. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are saved once for all. Our inheritance is in heaven. Holy Spirit given to us as a deposit. Securing that inheritance that can never be taken away. So we're saved. If you're a Christian, you believe you're saved. But there is an evaluation in terms of our works, in terms of our ministry, in terms of our service, there is a judgment. Um, and on that day, non-Christians will be judged, but Christians will also be judged. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of servants that they be found trustworthy but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. I don't judge. I'm not the standard. I'm not the arbiter. I'm not the evaluator for myself. The Lord judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before that time. We don't know. Right? I look like a good Christian. You look like a good Christian. We all look like great Christians here. But we must withhold, suspend our judgment until that day. Because that's where it counts. On that day, God will reveal not the quality of our works, but the motivation behind that work. Verse 5, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And each one will receive his commendation from God. I think NIV has motivation of the heart. I, I don't know what NAS has, but it's what's hidden in darkness. What is that? It's why we are doing these good works. At that time, God will reveal. And all that was motivated by self-righteousness, right? or ego, or for legalism, or moral morality or personal ethics or fear of man or all those reasons that was motivated it all burn away you're saved you're you're, you're going to heaven but there is no commendation from God if you're all driven by self in ministry but whatever was motivated by the gospel because of the grace of God the love of God you want to glorify God Right? You aim to please God, not for yourself. So you can tell others, look how I'm pleasing God. Right? If you're aiming to please God for yourself, you're not really pleasing God. But you're really aiming to please God, period. Prompted by the gospel, you'll receive right? 
commendation, praise, the light of God. And I believe that's what Paul's praying here in verse 18. Right, may the Lord grant Onesiphorus to find mercy on that day. Very interesting, like, use of words, choice of words. It's not may the Lord grant him mercy or that he would find mercy. May the Lord grant him to find mercy on that day as all his righteous works are exposed before God. Paul's prayer is, Onesiphorus receives kindness, delight, reward, commendation because what drove Onesiphorus to do all these things that he did for Paul in the church at Ephesus was not himself. He was not doing it Oh. That he'd be included in the Bible. Right? So that people would know his name in heaven. I'm that guy. Take a Timothy 1. His big name tag. Or Nissa for us. That's not what was driving him. Right? What's driving him was the cross. That's Paul's, Paul's prayer for him. Um, now for us, we could end here, but I, I, I think we need to end in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, these are the chapters and verses, these separations are artificial. It came hundreds of years later. When Paul wrote this letter, he didn't say chapter 1, verse 3, and then chapter 2. He wrote a letter. And so, somewhat arbitrary where the publishers like break off these paragraphs. Somewhat arbitrary. So definitely, next week when we do Marcus' Ascending Service, I'll preach, I'll start from 2-1. But, because that therefore, it connects subsequently, but connects uh, in the previous text as well. So I think 2.1 is connected to what Paul just said. Because for us, if we close out here, there can be two responses. One response is fear. Oh, man. I don't want to be fight jealous. What if I'm Hermogenes? I, I have fear in my heart. I have pride. I have self-love. I, I am often motivated by the wrong things. What if I deny the Lord? I abandon the gospel. I run away. I don't want to be like them. And you motiv- you're motivated to obey these commands out of fear. Of like, you don't want to shipwreck your faith like these men. Or, you look at Onesiphorus, and you look at yourself, and it becomes a source of self-condemnation. Oh, man, I could... I can never be like a mess for us. I'm, I'm so full of anxiety. I'm timid. Right? I'm, I'm not, not strong. I don't have this robust faith, confidence. I'm, I'm just afraid of, of even little, like slight or offense, let alone standing for the gospel in prison and putting my family on the line, my wife and children. And it becomes a source of self-condemnation, self-pity, self-rebuke as we look at this godly man. That is why Paul put chapter 2, verse 1. And maybe as a close to this section. Therefore, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong, but not in yourself. Be strengthened. It's a specific kind of strengthening. It's not, Paul's not saying be, be a man. Don't be a wimp. Don't be a yellow belly. Right? Don't be a coward. Don't be a weak sauce. Right? He's not saying that. He's saying be a, there's a specific kind of str- strengthening Paul is calling Timothy to. Be strong. Not strong. But be, be strong. Be strengthened in the grace. A specific kind of grace that is in Christ Jesus. So make sure you're rooted firmly in undeserved favor of God that is found solely in Christ alone. And so as we read this and say, you know what? I, I'm not strong, but I can be strong in God's grace. Right? What is God? I can, I can be a strong receiver. Like, give me, I'll take, right? It's hard to give, but it's easy to who, who has a hard time receiving? Oh, I, I give you more of that, right? Who has a hard time at a buffet? I'll eat that. I'll take that, right? Somebody pays for you. Do you even pay for yourself? Somebody pays for you. Come into a buffet, and oh no, you struggle, right? Oh man, like, how, how can I pay for all this? No, it's you. You it's paid paid for 
all you can eat, go to town. Okay, right? You just take and take and take. Second, third, fourth. We can all do that. And that's what Paul is calling Timothy to do. And Paul, what God is calling us to do. Be strong in grace. Undeserved favor, not by our works, but by His righteousness. For God has done it all. Right? Not driven by fear, not driven by self-condemnation. Driven by the fact that God loves us. And His love is not conditional. It's not capricious. It's not circumstantial. It's eternal. And we can never disappoint God, never please God above the gospel. He's shown us His love. And so, stay there. Be strong there. And if we believe the gospel in our hearts, it'll fuel us. And we don't have to worry about becoming like Phygelus and Hermogenes. And we don't have to be intimidated by man like this for us. Because we're standing strong in the gospel of grace. It's strewn throughout right, the epistles. Second um, Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Therefore, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. When I am weak, I am strong. What does that mean? I am weak. So I'm going to be strong in God's grace. I can't depend upon myself, my own righteousness, my own good works, my own strength. I have no strength. I have no ability. I have no discernment or intellect. I have no abilities. All I have is the grace that has given me undeservedly and I'm going to stay here. And you stay there. Then God will be glorified and God will use you but use me to endure to the end for His glory. Ephesians 6.10 Be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Be strong in the strength of God's might, not our own might. So we close out this passage looking at examples, bad and good, by being encouraged, by strengthened by God's grace. Here this morning, not because of what we have done or not, not because of what we haven't done. We're not, we don't have joy in our hearts because we did well or we don't have sorrow because we did poorly. Or we're here this morning, our hearts are satisfied because of the cross, because of the gospel. And Lord, we want to stand here, we want to stay here. We want to continue to feed off of the gospel and be strengthened by it. Your grace and mercy is indeed all we have to stand on. And it's our own soul strength. So we ask you as we consider these three men and what they show us that we will not respond in fear or respond in self-condemnation, or respond in faith to the cross. Thank you so much for your gospel and your truth in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.